not only am I not afraid to be queer in a red state, red states are where I prefer to be queer. That is how Samantha Allen begins her book, Real Queer America. In it, she documents a cross-country road trip she took to get to know and explore the lives of queer and trans folks across different red states. Cities like Norfolk, Louisville, and Indianapolis have thriving queer communities, and they're actually seeing larger increases in their LGBTQ populations in places like New York or LA. There is this myth that if you're LGBTQ and you want to be happy, that is only possible in a big coastal city. And as we talk about today with Samantha Allen, that is just not true. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. I wanted to have you on the podcast because I have been guilty through subtle and overt messaging of perpetuating the myth that if you want to be happy and you're queer or trans, you have to move to a big city. You have to live in New York or a big liberal blue state. And that's not true. Yeah. I mean, there are pockets of LGBT acceptance all over the country. The country doesn't look like blue on the coast, red in the middle. It looks like lots of little islands and pockets of blue all over. Yeah. And so there is tension, I guess, in what you write that you acknowledge in the book between these thriving communities that exist in places without legal protections. Yeah. In Texas, that contrast was so, so stark for me because never have I met a group of LGBT people who are more amazing, fun-loving, loud, boisterous, like beautiful people who have a state legislature that just every year is like, well, it's time to try to discriminate against you. Let's roll out some new bills. And uh, these LGBT Texans, they just show up at the state house protest, get most of those bills killed, and then party and hang out in Austin. And so in those places where they don't have the legal protections, do you find that queer people tend to be more politically engaged? I think so. You know, I found that in Atlanta for sure. I lived in Atlanta for five years in my 20s doing graduate school. And everyday LGBT people were more aware, I think, of what was going on at their state house. They were tuned into state politics in a way that I don't always encounter in, uh, you know, say New York, where I think a lot of people assumed New York already had a full transgender rights bill written into law because it's New York, right? And yet that didn't happen until earlier this year. And I feel like in those places like New York, like L.A., we experienced such an apocalyptic moment when Donald Trump was elected because we it crushed our view of like this queer utopia we live in. Whereas like possibly in these like redder states, it wasn't as big a surprise because they've been dealing with things like this all along. Yeah. I mean, one of the first people I interviewed for the book, he's my mentor at Emory University. He's a dean now. His name is Michael Shutt. He was like, I wasn't surprised when Donald Trump won. Like, I live in Georgia. I know that these things happen. And we saw with the Georgia gubernatorial election recently, kind of a crushing loss for uh, LGBT folks in the state who are hoping to really turn a corner uh, this past year. But yeah, you know, Michael was not shocked at the outcome. Similarly, you know, when same-sex marriage was made illegal in California via Proposition 8 in 2008, Michael wasn't shocked then either. He was like, this is what happens when you rest on your laurels. This is what happens when you're not I don't know, being really tuned into what's happening. And for so long in these big cities, we've been able to like, yeah. say it's okay. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like Los Angeles has, has been like that for you a little bit? 
Yeah, I do. I think that um, on the whole, we experienced Donald Trump's election uh, like singularly as a surprise that like shocked our worldview because everyone kind of like has that mentality of of they were not going to vote for him. Yeah, I was living in Florida at the time. And, you know, Florida sometimes gets portrayed as a swing state or a purple state. I think if you look at Florida state politics recently, it's a pretty red state these days. I was shocked by the election. I was devastated. I don't think I was, um, like, completely blown away that that was the outcome. You know, I was living in South Florida with my wife. I'm a transgender woman. She's a queer cisgender woman. And we didn't stay in South Florida. We spent a lot of time on the west coast of Florida, driving around the state, visiting the springs and the rivers and that kind of thing. You see Trump signs all over Florida. And so when it happened, I had this sort of sinking feeling of like, oh, this is happening. But it didn't feel like this couldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it felt here in L.A. Yeah. Um, It was a ghost town after. (laughs) With these thriving communities in red states, not only do they exist, but you actually write that their populations of queer people are growing larger than and faster than New York and L.A. Yeah. I mean, millennials are are moving to cities in the south and west, often mid-sized cities, because they're more affordable. I mean... I know this from trying to book a place to stay in Los Angeles for a few days. This is not an affordable place to live. Right. Uh, ditto New York. It's a very costly place to be. So I think economics are driving that. I think uh, cultural shifts in LGBT acceptance are driving that. I think m- majorities in all but six states now support same-sex marriage. So we're reaching a point where people still feel like they have to get out of more rural areas, but they don't feel like, oh, I have to get all the way to New York, all the way to Los Angeles. They can go to St. Louis or or Chicago or Bloomington or that kind of thing. And you also write about like Norfolk and Louisville. Yeah. How are people finding out that these cities exist with queer communities? Uh, I mean, often like word of mouth, I I suppose. LGBT people have this amazing network of, uh, I don't know, whispering to each other of like, hey, you should check this place out. It's pretty cool. I just had never heard of those cities being queer hotspots before. I mean, I was surprised writing this book all the places that, you know, I plotted out places in advance, like I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. Even then, with my itinerary in hand, I would show up in a place like Fayetteville, Arkansas, and people would say, oh, you need to check out this place called Eureka Springs. And I was like, that sounds magical. I've, I've never heard of that before. And sure enough, I drive like a little bit over to Eureka Springs. It's this magical little town with all these bed and breakfasts run by like gay couples. And it's this little like gay, you know, oasis in the middle of northwest Arkansas and a very beautiful part of the state. That's incredible. And so because a lot of media is centered in L.A., New York, that's tend to be like the queer communities we cover, right? We don't know about Eureka Springs. Yeah, I think it does a disservice to the LGBT community as a whole that that it's so focused, the media world, on L.A. and New York. Pitching the book, even, I encounter people who were just surprised that there were LGBT people in these places. And yeah, there are. There have been demographic shifts. More and more people in those parts of the country have been, have been coming out to their friends and family and coworkers, and they've changed the places that they live in and that they're from in the process. That's amazing. So in your book, you took a road trip through these red states to explore the queer community. It's called Real Queer America. You went into the trip, I assume, with assumptions. What were you most surprised by? You know, I think I was most surprised by the amount of LGBT acceptance I found in Provo, Utah. 
So some background on me. I'm an ex-Mormon. I left the Mormon church in 2007, 2008. Uh, shortly before then, I was a student at Brigham Young University, which is owned by the Mormon Church, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The school had an honor code that forbade, you know, homosexual conduct and cross-dressing. And so I felt like, oh, I'm in the closet. If I came out, I could be, um, you know, expelled here. I felt very stifled and suffocated when I was in Provo, Utah. I felt terrified to be myself. I would only be able to explore my gender identity in my car, uh, like in the corners of parking lots around town. It was very just, I don't know, a shadowy sad existence, I guess. And then I went back to Provo for this book, which I read in 2017. I found an LGBTU center right across the street from the Mormon temple in downtown Provo. It was just like bustling every day with activity of transgender and gender nonconforming kids and their parents, some of whom are still in the church, some of whom weren't. But everyone was just getting along together, playing games, making arts and crafts, like baking cookies. And it was so surreal to go back just 10 years after I was there and and feel like I was in a completely different universe. That's wild. Yeah, it was surreal. So does the Mormon church have rules against trans people being a part of it? Yeah, so the uh, the policies on it are a little less clear than they are on same-sex issues, just because the church has had a longer history of like really reckoning with the presence of gay members in the church. Uh, but they do have a policy in the handbook that says you can be subject to discipline if you seek some sort of sex reassignment surgery. Oh, wow. Um, So, you know, it's there. That policy isn't, like, super public, but that policy is there, and I've had a church spokesman confirm to me its existence as recently as a couple years back. And I ask that because... Obviously, trans people are not a new phenomenon, but like I guess for, like for the church though, like for, as far as they yeah. know, like they haven't always known about trans people in order to like write laws against them. Yeah, well, I mean, I assume a lot of trans folks have just left to transition because the church teaches that gender is eternal and and pre mortal, right? That you are assigned a gender like in a life before you were even born, right? And so when you exist in that kind of doctrinal and ideological framework, you think, gosh, I couldn't possibly be another gender than the one I was assigned at birth. So trans people can have especially painful experiences in the church. Uh, Even then, lately I've been encountering trans people who want to stay and try and change it from within. And they say, if the church disciplines me, they'll discipline me, but I'm going to leave that to them. And it seems like the enforcement of these rules, it has more flexibility in different places. Yeah. I mean, different bishops uh, who are leaders of local congregations in Mormonism can have different levels of acceptance. I think there is a pretty strong attempt in Mormonism to keep all the policies together and coherent. Uh, But yeah, enforcement can still vary on a local level. I think with Mormonism, there are so many misconceptions. I think they tend to like be insular communities, right? In like one area of the country, typically. Mm -hmm. And I think that we just don't even like know what that means. Like for the majority of Americans. Yeah. I mean, Mormons are interesting folks. I mean, I'm an ex-Mormon myself. Mormons in a lot of cultural ways are still my people in ways that I'm still reckoning with. You know, they're the people who understand why I want to drink a Diet Coke sometimes instead of a beer, like at the bar, like some of that Mormon childhood training sinks in pretty deep. But 
you know, they're interesting. They're not as hardline on LGBT issues as certain evangelical churches in the United States, but they're not necessarily as accepting as, say, like, you know, Episcopalians or some uh, some other, like, Protestant kind of traditions. So there's, there's somewhere in the middle there where they've still got this doctrine and this policy that's very anti-LGBT, but Mormons themselves... Um, you know, n- not all of them, right, just as in any faith group, but can be very kind. Uh, and in the last few years, I feel, are starting to turn a corner on acceptance of their LGBT kids and siblings. I think there's been a real awareness of how high the youth suicide rate in Utah has been and that that's been driven by the suicides of queer youth who felt neglected or abandoned by their families. And I think we're, we're starting to see the first signs of sort of a Mormon LGBT awakening. That's really big. Yeah. It would be amazing, especially for just huge swaths of the the Rocky Mountain West in the U.S. If Mormons were more accepting of queer and trans people, do you think that you would have left the church always? You know, gosh, it's... It's a, it's almost an impossible question. I think if I had grown up and the Mormon church had taught, you know, you can change your gender. Your soul can be a different gender than the body you were born into or something like that, that maybe I would have transitioned in the church and maybe I wouldn't have come to the same kind of moments of ideological and philosophical reckoning with it that I did. But my exploration of my gender identity led me down other avenues of, you know, looking at the church from a critical lens and kind of coming to the conclusion that I I didn't believe in, in what the church taught. I didn't believe in the doctrine or the scripture. And so I left for kind of those conjoined reasons. And, you know, I encounter folks now who say, like, I do believe in the doctrine of the church, but I also want to be LGBT. And the church has to deal with it. That's not my problem. Yeah. Besides drinking Diet Cokes every so often, what uh, what of your Mormon upbringing is, has stuck with you? Oh, my gosh. So, I think, one, saying gosh all the time. Uh, two, I would say I'm kind of like, I don't know, a homebody-ish, which I think it, there's a strong tradition of that in Mormonism. I'm not explaining myself well. I would say this. Growing up in high school, it was interesting when people got to the age where they start to be able to like drink or at least like sneak liquor out of their parents' cabinets or that kind of thing. Because we went from Friday nights where it was like, let's watch movies and like play a game or like go do a fun activity or play mini golf or like all of these things that I think are really fun to like, oh, let's just like drink now. Like, you know, there was that shift to like, okay, everybody's just going to drink and that's going to be our one social activity for the next like decade and a half uh, I felt like pretty alienated by that even at a moment where I wasn't strongly like believing in the church as a teen um, even after leaving the church when folks want to hang out I'm like well, okay can we do we have an activity Mormons love activities I don't want to just show up you know at a bar and have some aimless evening with someone I'm like what are we what are we actually doing that's really funny yeah <laughs> The longer that I'm out of the South, where I grew up, the more I see that it's imprinted itself on me. How so? Just the core of me. I think the way I treat people. Yeah. I think hospitality. I think being able to welcome somebody into my home and they feel at home instantly. I think these are all things I learned growing up in the South that I don't see always in other people. 
especially in big cities. No, absolutely. But I think that like the mind fuck of the LGBTQ experience is that so many parts of ourselves that we love, we developed from growing up queer or trans in an unfriendly place. Yeah. And it's like, well, would I have developed these things yeah. had I not done that? You kind of don't get to choose the places you, you grow to love because you were often born into them and shaped by them. And even if there are parts of it that feel like this is a hostile place for me to be, you can't escape being formed by the circumstances of where you are. Right. And then it actually creates good characteristics in you. Like, yeah. I'm, I think I'm a workhorse. You know, yeah. I work so hard. And I'm like, well, what I've done that. And you are also very hospitable. When I first moved to the South, I mean, I moved to Atlanta in 2010 from uh, New Jersey at the time where I was living. New Jersey, very brusque place. I remember, gosh, I was at the Kroger uh, and checking out of the grocery store for the first time after like dumping all of my stuff into the new apartment. And the, the checkout clerk at the Kroger was like, how are you doing tonight? And I was like, fine. And, but it was clear they actually like really wanted to know how I was doing. And I was like, no, this, this is not how this interaction works. Like I put the groceries on the belt. I give you the card. Like we're, we're done. Right. But she was like, oh no, like let's have a conversation. It's a great night out. Like, how are you? And that was sort of my, my immersion into the South was like, oh, people are actually like polite here. People are nice. <laughs> Which goes against everything you think about them being anti-queer. Yeah, absolutely. The, a new coffee shop opened in my neighborhood and I met the owner. I was like, oh, hi, great. And I said, welcome to the neighborhood. And she was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no, you say thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the nicest people I ever I met while I was living in Atlanta even, you know, even more polite than the folks I met who were from Georgia. Uh, I was like, where, where is she from? She was from Mississippi. And she just talked about Mississippi all the time. And Mississippi often shows up as like the worst state for LGBT people on lists. And I think in ways rightly so because of the lack of protections and, and this very like strict anti-LGBT law there, HB 1523. Uh, but this, this girl I met in grad school who's openly bisexual was like, gosh, I wouldn't be who I am without Mississippi. It, it made me a kind person. Yeah. And you experienced a kindness and, again, a hospitality that really shocked me in the book. And one moment that stood out to me was that a man, I believe it was in Utah, found out that you were on a road trip and he said, oh, do you need any money? Yeah. I mean, that blew me away. And that kind of hospitality wasn't uncommon. Yeah. I mean, everywhere I went, people were like, oh, come stay with me. Like the mayor of New Hope, Texas, Jess Herbst, was like, come stay on my ranch. Folks would want to pick up tabs for meals or or just, you know, I think on a base level, what they were most generous with was their lives and their stories you know i'm rolling into town some weird author in a seven seat suv because it was the only like suv that was available at the rental company uh just parachuting into their lives saying i'm writing a book on lgbt people in red states and they would just instantly say like oh that that needs to happen come sit down with me i want to tell you everything and that was just huge and these people that you were meeting along the way, were they people you'd met on the internet and connected with already? So several were, but then I would kind of use those folks as like lily pads to be like, who else should I talk to while I'm here? You know, so when I was, this is getting a bit into how the sausage gets made, but when I was writing the book proposal, I knew I needed to have 
you know, one or two people, characters in each state that I could plot in advance and count on being able to see an interview. So I had those in place. But gosh, that was maybe like 10 people total. And I think I interviewed a total of something like 37 people for the book. So each of those people provided me with more people to talk to um, along the way. And so you're finding queer community all across the country in red states. And you write that in cities, we are spoiled by choice. Uh, what yeah. did you? What do you mean by that? I think um, LGBT nightlife and social options in larger cities can be kind of taxonomic. It's like here's where, here's where this kind of LGBT person goes out for a night on the town. Here's where that kind of LGBT person goes out. Here where the here where here's where the bears go. Here's you know where whatever I don't know all the animal lingo right, but like. Everybody can just kind of split up and be with people who are just like them. Uh, and when you go to a place like Jackson, Mississippi, there's there's not really a lot of options. There's like one big LGBT nightclub in town. It's called Wonderlust. Thankfully, it's an amazing LGBT nightclub. So your only option is an amazing one. And everyone I talk to in Jackson, you know, white, black, gay, trans, cis, um, everyone said, we like that there's only one place to go to. It means when you go to Wonderlust, you see everyone. You know, you see, you have just a wide menu of people to interact with and socialize with. Oh, whereas in LA, there's not a lesbian bar yeah. a- anymore, anywhere. But in at Wanderlust, lesbians, everyone is there. Uh, yeah, you. <laughs> it's it's just uh, the full spectrum in one place. Whereas you know, in LA or New York, not only you know are you seeing certain bars that cater to like long-standing parts of the community closing you see just like a proliferation of like places that like serve incredibly specific clientele i think um you know and i think with less people i think the word you use in the book was there's an, an adhesiveness yeah it's um everybody has to kind of brush shoulders you know you can't say oh here's where the gay men are gonna go here's where the lesbians are gonna go uh Every, everybody has to share the same space and the same resources. Totally. So I hear from people all the time that are like, yo, I am the only queer person in my town or my community. How do I find people? And you had no trouble finding community? Like, what do you suggest for people? Yeah, I mean, look for the nearest. I, I So the way I do it is I go on Google Maps and I look for the nearest gay bar, the nearest city with a gay bar. And often if there's a city that has enough LGBT people in it or even a town like Bloomington that has enough LGBT people in it to have a gay bar or nightclub, there's often, you know, a bookstore that's LGBT friendly or a coffee shop too. And you can start, you know, doing some internet searching get on a Reddit thread for that town, ask for recommendations. Uh, It's sort of the queer world making is this really interesting process where we don't always have this, you know, guidebook that says, here's how you find your people. But if you start to find one or two entry points, suddenly people start introducing you to other people and places. And it's these things that I take for granted living in a big city that are often vital resources, things like a community center. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I totally understand 
like the feeling of being isolated and especially touring and reading from this book. Like I have encountered a lot of people who are like, gosh, I'm the only LGBT person in my town and I live, you know, an hour from the nearest city. And, and that's, that's heart wrenching. I think there still needs to be a lot of change uh, to come to more rural parts of this country. But I think the good news is, is gosh, you are an hour from Dallas or you are two hours from, you know, Austin or something like that. And um, it used to be that, you know, even then, you know, Dallas or Austin might not be the most LGBT friendly places. And now you can find amazing resources in those cities. Yeah. And I think it's very trendy nowadays for people in big cities to like drag on Grindr. But in small towns, like I've heard it described in ways I love, which is that like you see these like shining dots across the map of other queer people. Yes. Yeah. I think I think sometimes things that we can roll our eyes at about like gay or queer culture in big cities can be like lifelines in other parts of the country. Yeah. So when you're driving across the country, it was you and a friend who's also trans. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of like safety, did you feel comfortable stopping at like a random gas station to like fill up? Yeah, you know, I I didn't want to drive at night, uh, which is a road safety thing in part, but also just like, you know, physical safety. I've never encountered an issue in a restroom or a locker room personally as a trans person. And yet I'm intimately familiar with all the statistics that show that it is a common experience. Um, I think, you know, I'm shielded in large part by by being white. And my friend Billy, who traveled with me, is white as well. And so we had a, a fair amount of privilege traveling through these parts of the country in ways that I, you know, a queer person of color might have felt more uncomfortable, especially given the amount of, you know, like Confederate flags and memorabilia we would see between stops on the road. So I think being able to traverse the country with a certain degree of comfort is uh, is a privilege, even within different aspects of the LGBT community. Um, Gosh, I personally didn't feel unsafe, you know, and I had to go to the bathroom in a lot of sketchy places in a six-week road trip. Yeah. Gotcha. We tend to say that people are coming out earlier and earlier in their lives. Is that something you also experienced in these like more red states? Yeah. Gosh, one of the most uh, humiliating moments of the trip for me was when I was at Encircle in Utah, that, that youth center that I mentioned earlier. I started playing cards with this group of LGBT teenagers, and they were just like amazing and hilarious and like full of amazing quips and one asked me how old I was and I was like I'm, I'm 31 I was 31 at the time and and this kid was like I'm literally 15 years old and they all started like laughing at me and I was like okay this is humiliating but also like and the flip side of that was like gosh I'm so glad you found this so early like they were using vocabulary that I didn't learn until my later years in college like they knew terms like like transgender or asexual or like all, all of this sort of language and it was like gosh it, getting that information earlier can really unlock things for people I'm so glad you brought that up because that is something I did not think about before I read the book which is that asexual non-binary these are words that you and I learned yeah right and we get it and we understand it however kids are growing up and these are just words that they know intimately yeah 
It's wild. And that is a radical change that like the queer experience. Yeah, I think the internet has has driven a lot of that. Like there's there's access to so much information. I think media representation has definitely changed so that the shows kids are watching, you know, they're talking to me about these CW shows that I'm like, I have no idea what that is. I watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but like what is, I don't know, Arrow or yeah. Superpower, <laughs> like I don't know. And but they all have like LGBT characters on them and and these kids are growing up knowing like, oh, this is normal. This is a way a person can be. Contrast that with my experience growing up. I was like, what am I? Like, am I a crossdresser? Am I a sinner? Like, what what's, what's going on with me? And then in college, you happen on this word transgender and you're like, oh, wait, like, there's something there. Let me investigate that for a few years. Because when you said you're dressing up in your car in a parking lot, it's just because like that feels right and good. It's not because this is like the word transgender that yeah. you like know intimately. Yeah, I didn't read it on the internet and decide, hey, this is what I am. It was like, this is something I need to do. This is a reflection of, of who I am. It's some sort of expression. And yet it made me feel tremendously guilty growing up in Mormonism uh, to express myself in that way. Even to like an old age, I transitioned when I was 24 years old. Um, and yeah, it was, it was very isolating and lonely to have those feelings, but not have a name for them. Your parents are Mormon? Yeah, they're when, still devout. And they're still devout. When you were transitioning, how did that affect how they accepted your transness? Yeah, so, you know, I left the Mormon church in about 2008. And I think my parents and I had to go through a healing process of me leaving Mormonism. And then in 2012, I come out as transgender just when we were starting to heal from me leaving the church. And it kind of hits the reset button all over again. Uh, but I'm like really pleased with where my relationship is with them now. Um, I've I've been talking to more LGBT Mormons lately, and and what I what I say is like I take I take love where I can get it. You know, I'm not sitting down with my parents being like, let's talk about Mormon doctrine on gender identity and like what you think about it while simultaneously supporting your transgender daughter. I'm just like I'm not going to ask questions. You do your internal process with your faith as long as you love me and respect me and use my pronouns and that kind of thing, I'm, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to keep showing up for dinners and holidays and that kind of thing. That's nice. So they have a relationship with you and your wife. Yeah, we uh, we have dinner with them pretty regularly. We moved to in part to be uh, closer to them and we see them, gosh, maybe like every other week for dinner or a movie or that kind of thing. We have a very close relationship with them and I've, I've been really pleased to have that and I've been hearing more and more of that from LGBT Mormons th themselves that their kind of relationship with family members has shifted. I was speaking with someone just yesterday who said, you know, when I first came out, half of my siblings didn't want it, anything to do with me. My parents were disapproving, uh, but I'm getting married to another man in like November and now all of them are going to come to my wedding like seven years after I came out. And that's that kind of change is just remarkable to see. Wow. When you came out as trans, that's a label that you had to take on. Yeah. Was it additional pressure that you also had to take on this label of lesbian? Yeah. You know, gosh, I like I, I use the word queer mostly, I think, just to like say, I don't know, I'm not straight. <laughs> right. Um, it was an interesting experience. You know, when I transitioned, by the time I was transitioning, I had 
uh, exclusively dated women before my transition. Um, but I hadn't dated women who were interested in dating other women. I had I had dated women who were interested in dating men like the man they assumed that I was. And so, yeah, it was really interesting to go from, you know, male to female, but also to get this crash course in, like, queer dating and romance, you know, because the woman who I met, Corey, who would become my wife, I met her, like, eight months into my gender transition, like, really early days, very awkward stage for me. And uh, she is attracted to women and was attracted to me because that's how she saw me, I think, rightly. And um, it was weird. I had to get used to a new kind of relationship dynamic, you know? Woman to woman. Yeah, because, I mean, I've, I've written a bit about this before um, in other places, but <laughs> I, there, there's stereotypes I could trot out. But there's there was, like, a lot of processing, you know, where we got to talk. Like, we, we met, and then I don't think we slept apart for, like, the next month, you know? When a conflict arose, it was like, no, we need to, we need to like, get to the bottom of this and talk about it. Whereas when I was in couples that were at least outwardly heterosexual, it was like, oh, conflict would happen. We would go to our separate rooms, like, and, you know, then reunite and, like, make up or something like that. Uh, I think in heterosexual couples, like, you know, the difference in genders can sometimes be an emotional distance that that like really evaporates when you're of the same gender because you have so many shared experiences. You're using the same restroom, the same, you know, dressing rooms. Yeah. Like you're never apart. And so you have to figure out, gosh, how do how do I deal with this proximity? And uh the answer is it was it was jarring at first, but then I was like, this is the most amazing, beautiful intimacy I've ever experienced in my life. Wow. I love to rail against stereotypes about queer people, but I'm also equally delighted by them. <laughs> yes. Like, I love how many like lesbian stereotypes exist and are accurate. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> some stereotypes are stereotypes because uh, people have perpetuated them. I think U-hauling numbers among them. I mean, Corey and I were... Uh, Gosh, we were engaged like three months after we met or something insane like that. That's incredible. Another misconception I think about the trans experience is that every trans woman was a really um, flamboyant gay man, mm. right? And like that wasn't your experience. Yeah, I didn't come out as a as a gay man before transition. I was at least outwardly perceived as a straight man until I came out. Do you feel like you missed out? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, I missed out on like, I think RuPaul's Drag Race. I missed out on really understanding the connection there, I think. <laughs> I was walking by a, a bar last night just packed full of people watching RuPaul's Drag Race and I was like, I feel like I'm missing some kind of cultural like connection to this. So, you know, if I could go back in time, maybe I would spend two years as a gay man just to get it. Just kidding. I I would have gone back in time and transitioned a lot earlier than I did. But yeah, you know, I think a lot of trans women, a fair number of them, like are really good about hiding uh their gender identity because you get the message especially growing up you know in a place like the south they're like in a religion like mormonism you get the message like this is shameful you need to hide it and then people get really shocked when you come out like my parents were like my mom was like i didn't see this coming and i was like really like remember when i would like remember when i would steal sharon's clothes all the time as a kid and she was like yeah but like kids just do that and it was like oh well then i kept doing that in secret for like 12 years and 
you didn't notice because I was like a little ninja spy, like going around the house. Um, yeah, I, so I think I think it can jar people. My parents were like, where is this all coming from? Like, she's coming out, she's getting surgery, she's starting hormones, like all of this stuff. And for me, I was like, I'm making up for lost time. Like, I, I want to get this show on the road. And by the way, I have a girlfriend. Yeah, yes, that was that was an interesting experience for sure. Um, yeah, to introduce them to this, you know, queer woman from Long Island and say, hey, this is who I want to spend my life with. And you actually met your now wife, Corey, at the Kinsey Institute. Mm-hmm. Is that everyone's plan to like meet like a cute girl in the stacks and like make out? I, you know, like any good graduate student, I had those kind of weird like fantasies of like, oh, I'm going to go in the archives and it's going to be dusty, but it's going to be hot. And I'm going to meet some, you know, really smart, like beautiful person. Uh I didn't think that would happen when I went to Bloomington, Indiana to study at the Kinsey Institute for a summer. And then it did, which uh, just goes to show you should expect good things, I hope. But uh, yeah, I showed up in Bloomington, really awkward stage in my transition, as I mentioned, and um, about a week into my time there in this tiny reading room in the middle of Bloomington, Indiana, this, you know, uh, goddess shows up in the reading room with curly black hair and tortoiseshell glasses and red lipstick and I was like who are you and we kind of look at each other for three days saying nothing and then we got in the elevator at the same time to leave at the end of the day and that turned into like hey seems like we're both kind of lonely here in Bloomington neither of us know anyone why don't we get dinner which turned into us being engaged three months later that's incredible yeah. And you write, or the Kinsey Institute is Alfred Kinsey's yeah. uh, institute. <laughs> is that a good description? <laughs> um, how, what's the best way to describe the Kinsey Institute? It is a center for the study of human sexuality that collects archival material, like, you know, porn from the 40s, like that kind of thing. Perfect. So you write that if you're an American who has had good sex, you owe a debt to Alfred Kinsey. Yeah, Kinsey really kind of changed our conception of sexuality in the U.S. Uh, The Kinsey scale is still like really popularly recognized, even among the straight people, I think. They've still heard that term somewhere. And Kinsey really kind of helped push this idea of like, no, you're, people aren't just like exclusively homosexual or exclusively heterosexual. People can have all sorts of like sexualities that fall somewhere in between or at the ends of those spectrums. And he was writing that in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. And now that is just kind of considered fact. Yeah, you tell that to a teenager these days and they'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, sexuality is a spectrum. <laughs> but like, you know, 50 years ago, that was... A, relatively new idea for American popular discourse. That changed pretty quickly. Yeah. I I think it's a testament to the power of people coming out. People coming out and saying, I am this. I am bisexual. I am gay. Because uh, once you have people kind of claiming those labels and insisting on continuing to live their lives, everyone sees that gosh, people can't just all be straight. We can't just force, you know, we've seen that with conversion therapy laws recently, a huge awareness around the fact that conversion therapy or reparative therapy is ineffective. Like there's this growing idea of sexuality being something you can't necessarily change about yourself and something that can be anywhere from homosexual to heterosexual. 
and it's a growing realization for queer people and it's also a growing realization for queer people's parents like i think maybe like your parents who had no idea like what was going on when you came out as trans like maybe nowadays parents they they know what trans is yeah it's not a new concept to them they talked to me about the transgender military ban and like all, all the trump administration news i mean my parents were republican voters for most of their lives and like a fair number of more centrist or moderate Republicans have have really not been pleased with the Trump administration coming into power. And so, you know, they, they talk with me about like, hey, did you see this latest thing the Trump administration did to trans people? And it's like, gosh, seven years ago, you didn't know what trans people were. And now you're like an ally talking to me about the news. Do they read your reporting? Yes, they do, I think. I am, Corey thinks they read everything I ever write. I think that sometimes they might just check in. I don't ask them about it because I feel like it would be too, I don't know, egotistical to sit down and be like, hey, did you see that thing I wrote yesterday? Every time I see them, but yeah. Regarding reporting, I'm newly full-time at The Advocate, mm-hmm. and something I had to get used to was the fact that anytime something bad happens in the country, be it the military ban or another trans woman's killed or XYZ, we have to sit with it and process it and think about how this is affecting the larger community, the long-term effects of that. And before I was a, a journalist, I could just say, oh, that's really too bad and go on with my day. Yeah. And I just wonder if you experience is it difficult to report on everything for you? It uh, it takes an emotional toll for sure to to report on it, to hear painful stories, to think about implications for yourself, even as a transgender person. Um, gosh, just the other day, I was interviewing spouses and partners of transgender service members about their experiences over the last two years since President Trump announced on on Twitter that he wanted to ban trans people from the military. Uh, Because you can imagine if you're in a transgender military family waking up one day to see the president say, hey, your livelihood, your source of income, your source of health care, it's going to be gone. That's a really emotional experience. And so I spent the last few days like collecting those stories, interviewing interviewing families who have been just devastated by this. They don't know if they're going to have health care to support themselves or their children. Uh, and gosh, I just started weeping at my desk when I was reporting it. It's maybe one of t- two stories that like really affected me in that way. And yeah, it does. It does build up. It uh, <laughs> you can develop a thick skin, but even thick skins can still be pierced. And uh, gosh, it's been a hard time to be, as I'm sure you've encountered, an openly LGBT reporter reporting on LGBT issues at a time when we have a federal government that's really trying to roll back protections. And like the larger connotation I think of like firing every trans person from the military is that they're unfit to serve and then I think for like the larger America it's like well why would I hire a trans person like they're not fit to serve the military like what else are they not fit for yeah you bring up a really great issue which is like this is an employment issue too like it's about the military but the military is also the largest employer of trans people in the US uh, that has huge ripple effects on transgender people in this country like who are disproportionately more likely to be in poverty or to be unemployed Um, 
yeah, uh, we, we as a community need economic empowerment. We need access to jobs and health care. And the military, for a lot of trans folks, provided employment, health care, a sense of purpose. Um, and to have that be taken away is, is a huge toll. And, and tying this all back to the book, too, I don't want to paint a picture like good or bad of living um, in the South or living in red states because... Everything we talked about. Um, obviously, it's a personal choice. That, yeah. <laughs> breaking news, it's like whatever fits best for you. But there are larger rates of violence, larger rates of uh, like HIV in the South. Yeah. Um, and the where you live matters mm-hmm. in terms of like how these problems affect you. Yeah. That was, you know, I, I wanted to walk this line in the book of like not sugarcoating LGBT life in red states. So, you know, in each chapter, I was sure to like carve out space to be like, here are the problems that are still here. I think one of the positive things that I've noticed recently is that when I travel to these places, you know, I don't feel like a huge groundswell of anti-LGBT sentiment. It feels like there's a really vocal minority that's managed to gain a lot of power within state legislatures via powerful anti-LGBT groups. And I think that's the case in D.C. too with a lot of these policies we were just talking about, like the trans military ban. So I feel like we're at this, this really kind of crossroads where social and cultural acceptance has really accelerated and is starting to get to this really amazing place, uh, but a small number of really entrenched anti-LGBT groups and a vocal minority of anti-LGBT Americans have, have kind of grabbed the reins of power in state houses and right now in the federal government, frankly. Yeah. But we, for so long, have glorified queer life in big cities. So I'm grateful for the book. Yeah. I I was hoping that it could kind of contribute to that conversation. Like, one of the things I really wanted to drive home was, like, we've got this dominant narrative of 20th century LGBT life where it's like, oh, you get on you get on the bus in Kansas City to the Big Apple, you show up there with a suitcase and make your life in Greenwich Village or that kind of thing. And I don't want to discount like the huge role that cities like New York and San Francisco played in like creating and fostering LGBT acceptance uh, from, you know, kind of the 20th century into the 21st. But I think the center of gravity is is shifting now uh, as, you know, places like Salt Lake and St. Louis emerge as new LGBT hubs. I feel like things are shifting to the middle. That's exciting. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. That was Samantha Allen. Her new book is called Real Queer America, and I highly recommend it. That is it for today. We'll be back next week. Until then, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That's a great way to connect and recommend guests. We are brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come find us at theadvocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, Gabrielle Horton, Isabeth Mendoza, and myself, with sound engineering by Scott Somerville. We'll see you next week.